0: everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name's Tony. I have the privilege and the pleasure of being here on staff, uh, pastoral staff here at Wellspring. It's good to be with you. Now, if you're a kid and you want to hang out with other kids, uh, over here, Miss Jeannie, a number of teachers are over there. Claire's waving her hand too. It's good to be with you guys today. Now, if you were here last week, you know we're taking a break from our sort of large survey through the Old Testament to take four or five weeks to focus on what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? Uh, So we at Wellspring have this acronym called ABLE, right? So A stands for attend. These are practices that help us attend to the speaking voice, the presence of Jesus. B, practices that make us a blessing in the world, both inside and outside the church. Uh, L, practices shaped by learning, especially the scriptures. And then E, uh, eat practices, practices that make us into a people that are welcoming people uh, in this community, right, into community, and then also outside the church into fellowship with Jesus. Now, This week, last week we talked about Sabbath. We talked about attend practices. This week we're going to lean into bless. So what does it look like for us to be a blessing in the world? Specifically, we frame this in terms of the practice or one of the practices we highlight here is this idea of being a faithful presence of God wherever we go. Now, I remember, though, attending a training when I was in college and in this training, someone used sort of the, they were talking about sort of this idea of being a witness or being faithful presence or evangelism or however you want to sort of frame or package. And in the midst of it, they used this idea of a football field and specifically American football. This idea is, right, within the 20-yard line, that is called the, the red zone, right? 20-yard line to the end zone. And they said, okay, you know, what really matters in evangelism and sharing the gospel is getting people from you know the twenty in the red zone over the goal line. And on one level, I appreciated this analogy. It's like okay, there's a goal. That's great. Um, but I have to say, it made me really uncomfortable for a number of reasons. One, it made me uncomfortable because essentially he was saying this trainer was saying that my friend was a football right my secular friend that i love and care about is an object that i pick up presuming they're you know not i can carry them and like i carry them against their will or independent of their will across said goal line and i thought about it like wait wait we worship the god of the universe the god of the universe at any moment could make all of us obey his will but he chooses not to so what makes me different why do I then get to turn my friends into an object when I don't really care about their choice or will? Right? That was the first thing that made me a little uncomfortable. The second was, it felt like the entire frame was all dependent on my energy-will strategy. Right? Like, okay, you know, it's all about getting someone into through the red zone, into the touchdown, great, okay. So then it depends on my strategy, my convincing arguments, trying really, really hard to get them there, right? Like, my friend's salvation depended all on my both brilliance and strength. But Paul says pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians twelve three, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. But that sort of throws a wrinkle into this, right? Because if it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that someone can say Jesus is Lord, then really it's not just up to me, is it? It's not just dependent on my strategy. So what role does the Spirit play? Also, it felt like the whole paradigm of this training was sort of this success, failure, performance paradigm. If you ever listen, like, uh, this afternoon, right, and someone's talking about end zone or red zone performance, you'll have some, this is my commentator voice, you'll get the commentator on and be like, well, the Seahawks, you know, Jim, they're really good in the red zone. Russell Wilson, you know, whoa. And then later on, they'll talk about this other team, right, that has terrible red zone performance. be like, well, Jim, you know, like, uh, you know, they stink. They lose every game because they never get it in the red zone, right? Whatever. That's my commentator voice. There you go. Okay, but it's this idea of it all depends on the strategy, the brilliance of how they do in the red zone. Their performance there is the difference between field goals and touchdowns, winning and losing. And I guess, for me, that just made me uncomfortable. And it didn't totally seem aligned with the scriptures. So what I'm going to do this morning is repeat that training verbatim, so you guys can have plenty to critique. No, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my best shot at how do we approach being a faithful presence of God in the world. I'm going to do this in two parts. Part one is going to focus on sort of what do the scriptures say, and the second part is going to get into everyday life. So. What does it look like on the ground in the contours, the fissures, the crags, the stuck places of your daily life? At work, at home, in your neighborhood, in school, wherever. So, to do this, we're going to go back to the very beginning of the story. We're going to go back to Genesis 1. So, God creates all things. He creates everything. Right? The wood the trees that became the pews you're sitting in, right? Everything, <laughs> everything. And on day six, he creates cows and all kinds of other creatures, and he creates this being, right, that we know affectionately as humans. Genesis 1, So God created mankind or humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is pretty important uh, in the overall arc, and specifically as it's connected to being a faithful presence. Because what's important is, you have to sort of know a little bit historically, contextually. In the ancient Near East, in Egypt, especially in Assyria, uh, they would describe the king as the image of God. Right? So the king would then represent God's interests on earth. Also then, there would be images of these gods and these kings made into sort of smallish figurines that would somehow sort of carry the spirit of said god in an indwelling idol, uh, that would create this sort of unity between the god and his image bearer, right, this little statue. And this context really informs what the author of Genesis in 127 is trying to get at. When he says, right, that human beings are made in God's image, he's saying that as humans we are called to be God's representatives on earth. See, the other creatures, they're made according to their own kind. Read through Genesis 1. And they were made according to their kind, right? And they were made according to their kind. But the account of humankind's creation says that humans are made according to the likeness of God. And this is super, super important. You see, when the Egyptians and the Assyrians, they talked about the king being made in the image of God, it only applied to the king. Genesis one twenty seven basically democratizes the image of God to all human beings. Men, women, right? Every human being represents God in His kingdom on earth you also notice in Genesis 1.27 that human beings are created male and female. And this is the first part, first time in Genesis 1 that gender is actually a really important feature of the story. So for humans, gender really matters. Right? And this goes back to God as the designer of all things, right? God forms us as gendered beings And actually, if you look at the Hebrew grammar of verse 27, what you'll notice is that men and women not only image God individually, but they image God collectively as a community. So this means, right, that the imaging of God is not simply every human being is sort of like their own image of God, but not only individually, but collectively, we as humans image and represent God on earth. Right, and then this idea, this concept then really shapes how we understand God's command to subdue and rule, right? One of the first things that humans are commanded to do in verse 28. So then because human beings are commanded or called uh, image bearers, right, they're invited to rule the world on God's behalf. Right? They're representing. They're acting as stewards. And this is obviously is not a free ticket to exploit everything. God just spent six days making this awesome place. Every day. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Right. The next thing he says is not, do whatever you want. No, represent my interests. I'm the one who created this good thing. Now you carry my interests into the world as my representative. So, right, contextually, Ancient Near Eastern kings, as image bearers, were expected to care for their subjects. So are we. We are expected to care for, to consider the interests of God and bear right, His inter- interests in mind as we act as His image bearers, His representatives in the world. That's Genesis 1, as it ends. Right. So the purpose, the design of God is that you and me have a purpose greater than ourselves in our making. None of us were created just to rock it on our own doing whatever we want. We were designed for a purpose greater than ourselves that was connected to God and His kingdom. Now, we know, right, in Genesis 2 and 3, things fall apart pretty quickly. Humans don't embrace this calling. To bear God's image in the world, they go their own way and introduce sin, this essential failure of humankind's to submit right to the spoken voice of God and bear His image in the world. Now, this tragedy, sort of, we can see today, but God doesn't give up on humanity, so what does he do? He calls this guy Abraham. He finds one family that he can call to, then, bear his image in the world, to be a blessing, to represent his kingdom. Genesis 15, 3, he says to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God wants to bless the world, Jew and Gentile, through Abraham's descendants. Sadly, though, right, Abraham's descendants basically do as well as Adam and Eve did. Right? They don't become the blessing they were intended to be. Like Adam and Eve, they experience exile. This time, though, not from a garden, but from the promised land. Just as the original human beings did not bear God's image in the world, did not represent His interests on earth, Israel doesn't either. Right? Each experiences exile. And this is the, a major subplot of the entire New Testament. Paul writes in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And this image bearer, this Jesus, right, comes to earth, and what does he do? For three years, he teaches, he disciples. He shows people what does it look like to live as a representative of God in the world. He models this for people. He gives them opportunities to practice, right? Then he's resurrected, crucified, resurrected, and just before he ascends to be with the Father, he sends these disciples out to what? be His witnesses in the world, to represent God's kingdom on earth, to be His faithful presence, right? To bear His image in the world. The thing is, you know, we're not perfect. We're in process, right? Same was true in the first century. But Jesus, right? God, through Jesus, still sends these broken image bearers out into the world to represent his kingdom. Now, this is really beautifully captured in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Jesus says, right, to the 11, Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age Now before we dive into the content of what Jesus says I just want to highlight who is sent cuz I think this is one of the things we read over and we skip and we just need to like sit in for a second Look at this, verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So Jesus sends doubting worshipers to be his image bearers, to represent his kingdom on earth. And this word doubt in verse 17 is a kind of a rare word in Greek. The only other occurrence is one other time in the New Testament. So the disciples are, like, rowing in the Sea of Galilee. This massive storm erupts. Jesus, like, is walking on the water, and he calls, out, calls Peter out on the water. He says, you know, Peter, join me out here, or whatever, and Peter starts to walk on the water, and he looks around, and he starts to freak out, right? And Jesus says to him, he starts sinking, and Jesus says to him, why did you doubt. That's the only other occurrence of this word, doubt, in the New Testament. So it's this moment of when you feel unsure. You're not sure what to do. You're overwhelmed. You're not sure what's going on. You feel in over your head. It's that kind of doubt. A doubt, I think, most of us know on one level or another. And it's this kind of doubt that some of these disciples hold as Jesus sends them out to be his witnesses in the world. What I find interesting, though, in Matthew 28, there is no word about the alleviation of this doubt. It's not like Jesus speaks and it's like, oh, it's gone. You know, sometimes we have this hope uh, as Christians that like, Whatever we carry inside us, whether it's anxiety or depression or, you know, doubts or whatever it is, we think, oh, if only, you know, God would just heal me on the spot. A lot of us long for this. That's not what happens in Matthew 28. Instead, Jesus tells him three things. First, he tells him that he is in control. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me hey guys, I know you have your doubts. I know some of you are really unsure what is about to happen. I know some of you are, are nervous about when you're bearing my image in the world, you're representing my kingdom, you're being a witness. Someone's going to ask you a question and you're not going to know what to say. Or You're going to be in this moment where you're afraid of how someone's going to respond to you. And Jesus said to me, guys, I am in control. I am the creator. You are the creature. Control is not something that comes to you easily. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, not to us. And as he sends them out, the first word he says to them is, guys, I'm in control. You won't be. But that's okay. Because point two, he gives them a purpose greater than themselves. Right? Genesis 1. Human beings are created like are, sorry it's sort of a philosophical word popped into my head, ontologically designed like basically in their being. They are created with a purpose greater than themselves. It's not just a task it's who they are. Jesus reminds them of this task as he sends them out. It's interesting though, think about it. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected. The next thing he says isn't Guys, I've done it. I've done it, you know? Chill. Grab some Galilean wine, some Jerusalem falafel, kick back, enjoy the sun, hang out. Victory is ours. Even though victory is ours, he still sends them out. He still sends them To be his witnesses in the world, to make disciples of all nations, to extend the blessing of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And three, he tells them that wherever they go, he's going to be with them. Surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. He doesn't send him out alone. He goes with them through the Holy Spirit. And I think what he's trying to tell them in this moment is, hey guys, I'm going to ascend to the Father. So you're not going to see me at the moment. And there's going to be moments over the next day, week, year, years, where you're going to feel alone. And you're going to feel lonely. And you're going to feel vulnerable in those moments. On the threshold of that space, remember, I am with you always, even if you can't see me. I am there. Now it's tempting at the end of Matthew 28 to assume that this is a highly individualistic thing. But I want to pay attention to two points. One is, Jesus does not meet with the disciples one-on-one in a coffee shop and say, you, you are my witness, now go. And then meet with the next one and do this 11 times, have 11 different appointments. He gathers a community of people And he sends this community, which is a collection of individuals, to represent his kingdom in the world, which mirrors Genesis 1.27. Human beings are created in the image of God, male and female, to image God in the world, individually and collectively. So yes, every single person in a pew that is following Jesus or up in the balcony or online, everyone is meant to bear God's image in the world. And collectively, we are meant to bear God's image in the world. And you see this happen. It's really interesting, right? So church history is just full of these stories. But you get a couple hundred years in, and you see this little band, right? These 11 people that are sent out creates this crazy movement. Such that by the 4th century, the emperor Julian is like, these Christians are driving me crazy. Crazy. And he doesn't point to one. He's not like, there's the one superhero Christian who's doing everything. But there's this collective movement of the whole church. This is what he writes. Fourth century, Emperor Julian, he says, Atheism, which how he referred to Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. Why? Because Christians are caring for them. And that the godless Galileans, Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. They don't distinguish between caring for those who are struggling in and outside the church. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Right, so the the folks in the pantheon of Greco-Roman belief are like looking around for like, hey, we need help, and no one's coming to their aid. But the Christians, as a collective, are all doing these small acts which leads to this massive witness that leads thousands and thousands and thousands of people to submit their lives to Jesus. And within 100 years, we'll change the entire Roman Empire. So what about us? I think most of us, you know, if you've been in church for a bit, I think most of us have some level of like, all right, we agree that the scriptures say that Jesus says we are supposed to bear his image in the world, that we're supposed to represent his kingdom, we're supposed to be his faithful presence. But we do this in very different ways. I've watched people respond in lots of ways to this sort of invitation. I've seen people, not uncommon, to like muscle up on apologetics, which I love. Actually, apologetics are great just muscle up on apologetics, and then they go into the world, and they just, like, attack people. <laughs> right? And, and, like, I love apologetics. I like the engagement of that. But it feels like sometimes it's undermining the love posture that Jesus encouraged. And then I see other people on, the, on a sort of different side being like, well, I look at these people or in the media, and I'm just like, I don't know, Christians have such a bad rap. Maybe we just shouldn't do this. And they just kind of bail. Or, I think another approach that's very popular right now is like, you know what, let's just do social justice. We don't need to use words. Let's just do the actions. Now the problem I have with all three of these approaches in general is if we just go back to the example of Jesus, what we see is he is literally the image of the invisible God, right? Literally the image of the invisible God. And what does he do? He uses actions. He does all kinds of amazing, loving actions. But guess what? He also uses words. And my guess is, if Jesus needs to use words, we probably do too. I don't know about you, my life doesn't declare quite as clearly as Jesus is. So maybe I need to resort to words to talking about what his kingdom is like. Right? And Jesus did his actions, did his words in such a way that people said, man, he is the embodiment of God's love on earth. Paul tells uh, his apprentice, Timothy, to be prepared to share the gospel in season, when it's on his calendar and it's prepared, right? And out of season, When it wasn't in his, you know, Google Calendar or his Apple Calendar, be prepared, right, for that moment. You're planning and that moment when you're not, with your words and with your life. And I guess I just wonder, you know, if you were like pop, if someone just said to you, coming out of this building, like, "Huh, you went to church today? Why? What would you say? Do you know?" Would you say, I'm a Christian, that's why I go to church? i will tell you, that's not gonna be super winning. They're like, yeah, I know, you were in church. I got the Christian part. Like, do you have a story about why? Do you have a reason why you come that you could share to someone, right, in season and out, oh, this is why I love God. This is why I make time on a Sunday morning to worship an invisible being with other people. Just to let you know, in the secular world, people do not gather to worship very often. This is a very unique thing. There are people, A bunch of people who don't live in the same house, who do not have the same socioeconomic background, racial background, and many of the same cultural assumptions come together and say, we worship you beyond themselves. That doesn't happen. Why do you do that? We should all have an answer to that. Now I realize this is all about a bit risky, right? It's like, Tony, I don't know if I want to do that. Like, I'm not going to let this person into this place of me. And what if they don't like what I say? What if they reject me? What if, right, and we have all these questions that surface in our minds and in our hearts. See, one of the great things about really leaning into being a blessing, really leaning in to be the faithful presence of God, is it actually forces us to let go on a deeper level internally. Sometimes we think about, like, oh, this is all about blessing. This is all about other people. Actually, these are intimately connected. Intimately connected. Because as we take the risk to share our faith all kinds of anxiety surface, all kinds of fears surface, all kinds of identity questions surface of, well, what are they going to think about me? What are they, you know, what's going to, what, are they going to not like me? Ah, and then we start to like, I think I'll wait till tomorrow. The rhythm of being God's faithful presence is one of the best heart revealers. Right, it gets at identity, it gets at affection, it gets at who we belong to. Because one of the reasons that many of us gathered today do not talk about our faith in Jesus is because we don't want to look silly. We don't want to be seen as that weird, crazy person. Right? We just want to blend in. And what happens when we blend in is that we undermine the very countercultural message that we are called to represent and embody. That's the whole point of bearing God's image and representing His kingdom versus just the world in which we live. Now, sometimes I think, you know, we, we're like, but, but Tony, come on. This is like super secular Monterey Peninsula. Like, you know, maybe if I was in another place where people sort of shared some of my assumptions, like that would be easier. Totally get it, right? I like think in 2019, Barna said that, uh, you know, the Monterey and Salinas, this sort of area, was the 21st most secular or least church place in the United States. That's pretty high. I mean, we're ahead of like major cities, I think we're ahead of New York. I mean, like, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think about. But the truth is, from history, we know, right, that these first disciples, those 11, that he literally just sent into the world, he didn't exactly send them into this safe, comfortable environment. Right? Every disciple of those 11 are met with hostility. All of them, except for one, actually die within the next, like, 40 years. And yet, because they are willing to enter onto this journey, the entire Roman Empire ends up getting transformed, right? The world in which we inhabit is shaped by the faithfulness of those 11, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right, there's outward fruit, but I would say even I mean, maybe not even cooler, but equally cool is that in the process, we also are transformed. Because as we actually learn to trust, our hearts are transformed. Because the thing is, and you know, people don't like to say this, but it's true. Comfort and risk are almost always opposed to each other when it comes to growth and discipleship. That when we really want comfort, we tend to undermine our development of trust. It's in our risk that our trust grows, because that's when we're overexposed. That's when we're on the water, walking like Peter, and we're starting to sink, and it's like, oh no, what did I do? Jesus, help me. Risk almost always cultivates faith. All right, so what does this look like? let was trying to think of like a simple way that we could frame this that wasn't, didn't involve a football field or an end zone or anything like that, uh, but had in mind, what does it look like for us to embody and be God's faithful presence in the world? I think this. So faithful presence, I think, starts actually with prayerful listening. It's not about forcing things. It's not about turning friends into objects like footballs and carrying them over a goal line. The assumption is that God's already at work in the world. It's not like you are the start of the mission of God. The kingdom of God existed before you. God has been at at work in the world before you were born. So the question is not, you know, or the, the, the invitation is not like, grab you know like your brave heart sort of face paint and just like charge into the world like ah you know but to stop and listen to pray spirit what are you doing in my class at NPS or DLI when i show up how are you already at work in these fellow students lives when you show up to your teaching job or your other job, or your part-time job, or whatever. When you walk, when you drive home and park, and your neighbors are out front, Spirit, what are you doing in the lives of these people around me? How are you wooing these people to yourself already before I even got involved? It starts with prayer. Eugene Peterson and the contemplative pastor, Aaron was reading it, and he told me about this this week. He said, Uh, that Eugene writes that in the spiritual life, he always feels like he's late to a meeting. You know that experience when you show up late to a meeting? And like the first thing you do, like who when they're late to a meeting walks in and be like, all right people, this is what we're doing. No, you don't. The first thing you do is say, I'm so sorry. What did I miss? That is what being the faithful presence is all about. Oh, God, I, God, I know you're at work here. What did I miss? Bring me on board to what you're already doing in my classroom, on my block, in my family, in my workplace. What are you doing, God? Help me, you know, get on board with what you are already doing. We are always late to the meeting. The first step is prayerful listening. All right, God, what are you already up to? I want to partner with what you're already doing. Right? So faithful presence begins with prayerful listening, and it leads to your discernment and response. God says, oh, I want you to bless this person. This person's in real need. They're in pain. Be a blessing to them. Oh, this person's lonely. They're struggling. They're feeling insecure. Be an encouragement to them. Oh, I want you to pray more deeply for this person. Oh, I want you to share your story with this person. I think they're ready. I remember this uh, a bit ago. I was, I used to rock climb a lot. And one of my guys I used to rock climb with, uh, we just, you know, you rock climb and rock climb and rock climb. Got to know him pretty well. And one day we grabbed lunch, pizza, and just had this sense the spirit was like, okay, now's the time to tell, share your story. I, I, it wasn't like day one. I was like, did you see the sun set this morning? <laughs> God did that. You know, like I wasn't trying to force it. I wasn't trying to, like, make stuff up, you know? <laughs> and when it happened and I felt like the Spirit was leading, my friend was like, so tell me, this, I think it's kind of weird that you're a pastor. Why, why are you a pastor? And I remember just sharing them. This, this is why I'm a pastor. This is what God has done in my life. And I remember literally eating pizza and crying, and it was just like this moment of, This moment of just like, no, this is why I'm here. And for him, it was like this window into really deep, meaningful space. And we had this really cool conversation about meaning and purpose, right? Because when we're talking about Jesus and people following Jesus, that's what we're talking about. We are talking about the deepest, most profound questions on the planet. We're trying to help people say, oh, yes, yes, Jesus is the center. He's the creator and sustainer of all things, and he's rescued me from this this pit of stuckness and sin and brokenness. But you don't get there superficially. You get there as you wade into people's lives with them. You share what God has done in your life. Faithful presence, right? Right? starts with prayerful listening. It leads to discernment and response and regular heart checks. Because the thing is, as we listen and as we pray, God will say, "Oh, and I want you to do this. I want you to share your story here. I want you to do this. And what we're going to happen, what's going to happen inside of you, is maybe you'll have experience of joy and excitement, maybe you'll have a little anxiety and fear. Maybe you'll be like, "Eh, pass, next time. But each of those things, what it does is it reveals your heart to you. It reveals where you're actually at with Jesus, where you're at with actually trusting him. So this process of being called and sent into the world to bear his image is deeply connected to our own formation as people that trust Jesus. Right, It gets at our idolatry. It gets at our identity. It gets at lordship. Who is the Lord in this relationship? Now, I think that process is a helpful one and gives you some handholds uh, as far as like, where do we start? You want to be a faithful presence? Awesome. The first thing you should do, prayerfully listen. <laughs> Two, when you hear, you should actually faithfully respond to it. Don't be like, eh, I'm going I'm to chew on that for another five months. We listen, we respond, and in the process, as we're chewing on it for five months, we realize, hmm, I'm afraid. God help me to overcome my fear. All right, so experiment-wise, I want to give you two or three other little things I think you can start with. One is, I want to experiment which like, what barriers do you think get in the way for you? What are one or two barriers that pop up? You're like, well, in my workplace, I'm afraid of getting fired. Yeah. You know, is that, you think that's what God wants? Like, you think he wants you to get fired? I think sometimes we go to these, like, extreme examples that nine times out of ten are not going to happen. They could, though. But, like, so what is that? What's going on in your heart? You're afraid this person's not going to like you. They're going to think you're weird. Okay, what's going on in you? process that with Jesus. I think for some of us we might need to confess ways in which we've we've bought in to narratives about ourselves or life that are just not true. Barriers. I think too I would just sort of poke focus on like who has God already placed in your life that you can be a faithful presence to. My guess is you don't need to like fo- find five new people today. My guess is there are five people already in your spheres of influence that God says, oh, I already put you here. That's actually why you're there. That's actually why you already have this friendship. Oh, yeah, no, I put you there because I want you to represent my kingdom with this person. It's one of the reasons as you go in and out, right, we have these little pray for five cards. Who are five people in your life? You can just write their names on there that remind you as you're reading your Bible or going about the day, I'm going to pray for these people and just ask God, all right, God, What about Jimmy or Sarah or whatever? Just kind of go through the list. What are you doing now? How can I be a part of encouraging them, blessing them, sharing about your kingdom with them? Three, and this one's going to feel maybe a little bit uh, different. Three, I would just say, I think actually attending church every week is one of the most effective things we can do to bear God's image in the world, and represent his kingdom. And I say this for a few reasons. One, in our culture right now, like church attendance, I think, has gone from, you know, in the 60s, maybe it was everyone came every week. Now it's sort of like once a month, I think, is the average. And what we do is we actually undermine our collective witness as a people who prioritize worshiping the face of God actually one of the greatest witnesses we bring to the world is as a worshiping community that turns to Jesus and says, I worship you and no one else. That You can actually put all those other things in some ways below that because if we are not gathering together in some meaningful way to submit our lives before the king, we're really not going to do the other things or we're going to do them in our own power And in our own brokenness rather than aligned with the King and his kingdom. And this isn't just I listen to, you know, K Love on the radio. This is the community coming together to worship the King. Right? Christians have been doing this from the very beginning. Remember, we are sent into the world, we bear his image. The church gathered in worship, is maybe one of the most powerful witnesses to a secular world because it is a parable they cannot explain. Why do people fall on their knees in the presence of the King of Kings if he doesn't exist? Why does this happen time and time again? Why do they prioritize it every single Sunday? Maybe there's something going on there. With that said, I want to invite the worship team back up Just to sort of, as we sing these last two songs, I just want to, you know, one of the greatest witnesses you can do, things you can do as an image bearer is just submit yourself in worship to Jesus, right? And worship is also a place where we get to listen to the speaking voice of God calling us into the world to bear his image. So as we enter into worship, this first song is about the great I am the greatness of God, the glory of God, right? That he is before you, before me, before all things. And he will be around. His kingdom is eternal. And we're invited to enter into worship of that king right now. God, speak to us. Reveal yourself to us. Remind us that this is not just an ancient book. You are a living God, inviting people, inviting us and the world into relationship with you that the world might know you. And you've given us a role in that to bear your image, to represent your kingdom, to be your faithful presence. God, may we embrace that role, may we live into that calling. God set us free, that we are not trapped and bound by fear and anxiety and worries about what other people think of us, but we would be a people that are constantly attuned to your voice and your kingdom. Align our hearts and minds and bodies and all we do with you this morning.